Okay, uh, good evening. Hey man, you know I'm going to squeeze every minute we got here, so we better get started. Otherwise, I'll, I'll, I'll take it out on the back end and we'll be here for seven hours. Uh, well, Babcock will leave in a huff. <laughs> uh, okay, good. Let's go ahead and get started. So, we spent, uh, we spent the first week at an introduction talking about kind of how, we're, how well, how are we to read the book, right? Um, that's what's in your packet. If you don't have a packet and need one, let me know. Or if you've lost yours um, or using as a doorstop. Any of the above, if you need another packet, let me know. Uh, it's also online. You can get it off the Facebook group. So we talk a little bit about how we're to read the book of Revelation to try to keep us in some safe parameters to understand the book well. Um, and then last week we did our um, Revelation chapter 1. We spent longer on there than I anticipated, but um, I think the value of doing that is we get some of the principles that we looked at in the introduction class. We got to kind of explore those a little bit through Revelation chapter 1. Right? We saw um, some symbolic language. We saw interaction with the Old Testament. We saw all those things kind of come together um, while we were looking at Revelation chapter 1. So uh, I'm hoping to kind of lean on that as our framework. We're not going to spend near as much time digging into that extent as we continue through the book. I just wanted to give you a good exposure to it um, because, again, what, what I think we're going to find is we're going to feel pretty comfortable with it. We're probably going to be okay as we go through the churches. Um, and then we're going to hit a spot where we're like totally going to bail on all our principles and be like, into the world, that's not a symbol, that guy's got ten heads and I'm afraid of him. Okay? And so we're going to, we have to keep reminding ourselves to keep this book in context, just like if you guys remember when we went through it, um, like Matthew 24, we had the same problem. We had to keep an eye on our context and what was going on around us so we didn't jump too far off uh, off the board. So I think that's, that's uh, why we went through that much last week. I want to get through the churches this week, and if I have time, which seems very unlikely, um, we might actually delve into the throne room of God in chapter 4. Um, that gets dangerous because my notes stop at the end of chapter 3, uh, so the rest will just be my blowharden about whatever I think on chapter 4. But, uh, you know, we'll see how that stuff goes. Okay? No, that's I, I, understandable. That's understandable, right? Actually, this is very helpful, Rick, because uh, with, uh, with Dave Herrick not here anymore, I need someone to, to harass some of my output, and I feel like you're the man. You're the right man for the job. Yeah, yeah. You've got the commitment, and you've got the temperament, uh, you've got the distrust of me. All this is good. Okay? That's now your work from, from going forward. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. And the, the, the false anger, I love it. Keep it coming. Keep it coming, Rick. Perfect. Okay, so we're in Revelation chapter 2. We said, as part of our overview, right, that this is a letter to seven specific churches. Um, John is constantly working on a very wide temporal plane. It means something to them, also means something to us, okay? But we can't pull it out of their hands, okay? If it means something to us that it has no reference at all to them, then I think we got a problem. So, let's see what John is writing to these individual churches. Um, if you had a chance, I tried to post some of this stuff on Facebook during the week so that we could didn't have to spend so much time kind of going through it. So I'll touch it a little bit shallowly. Um, but if you can make it back to the Facebook group if you're on it, um, you can kind of take a look at some of that other stuff that I've posted uh, about these individual churches. One thing we're going to notice about the letter, and I, I wanted the letters, and I want to make this case that for the times where you think we may be stretching something, I don't know about the sevens. I don't know about the patterns. I don't know about the chiasm, that we're, the stuff we're going to talk about. Okay, I, wa- I want to look at the structure structure of the letters to help us kind of open our mind to the bit that John is being intentional in things that we are not prepared for him to be intentional in. Okay, we don't expect to take that someone has taken such care to structure the way that they've written something. Okay, so it feels for us, Western readers, that anything that has that type of structure feels like a stretch. Okay, so I want to try to make the case to you as we go through these letters that John has done some things very intentional here. Um, and here's the pattern that we're going to notice. You're going to notice that to each church, um, it is addressed to the angel of that church. Okay? There's going to be some sort of identification of Jesus, and we're going to see this all tie back to chapter 1. 
So the um, descriptions that were given of Jesus in chapter 1 of Revelation are going to show up in the individual letters or messages to the seven churches. Okay, Could be coincidence, seem like it's not, right? If he's using the same comparisons between the two. You're going to get Jesus saying, I know. I know your deeds. Okay, This is an, an agnostic term, meaning it's not implicitly negative or positive. He just knows. He's saying, I know you. I can look at your church. I have familiarity with what you do. I know. Okay? He's going to give some sort of assessment. It is good, it is bad. Okay, These are things that I like, these are things that I don't like. There's going to be an exhortation or encouragement. Okay, If you do this, okay, here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to change. You need to repent, that kind of stuff. There's going to be a promise for overcomers. If you are the, those, the conquerors, is how he'll generally refer to it. Okay, This is what a conqueror looks like. This is what you will receive. And then finally, he's going to end with the same thing. Um, listen to the, what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, same thing, letter after letter. Seems very intentional about John that he's done this, structured this in the same way for each of them. Okay, okay, uh, let's get started in Ephesus. This is the start of Revelation chapter two. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay, everything show up in our list? Yeah, yeah, I think we saw him kind of treat all of those things together. A little bit about Ephesus, quickly. Um, we said John is closely associated with this city. This is um, after the, uh, I said the diaspora was the Jewish dispersion. Okay, when there starts to be trouble in Jerusalem, they are dispersed. Um, uh, some of it moves north, some of it moves uh, to the east. Um, and east is, is where Ephesus is at, and that's, you get a center. Hey, Zaya. Um, you get a, a kind of a Christianity central. Uh, John is there. Uh, Paul has been there. Uh, Jesus' mother Mary lives there. Okay, um, That's the church of Ephesus. It's a major commercial center standing at the convergence of three popular trade routes. Um, it likely had a population of more than 250,000. It's a big joint. Okay, There's plenty of people in Ephesus. Um, Rowan had, had granted Ephesus self-governing status and justice was dispensed by a governor. So there, Rome had the option of people things that they would oversee directly or they would uh, allow you to kind of rule independently as they captured places, as they captured cities or whatever. Um, it was in their best interest to make sure it was maintained. Rome uh, kept peace. They call it the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Now, when we talk about double-edged swords, the Pax Romana was that. Okay, It felt like peace to the person inflicting the peace. It felt like not peace if the sword was coming at you to try to keep the peace of Rome. Okay, Double-edged sword. Um, similar principle which we'll see on how Jesus reacts. Okay? Um, it was famous for its marketplace and its massive theater. Uh, you could accommodate 25,000 uh, people in this theater. Uh, Samaritan's going to have the same thing. Um, and it's interesting because we think 25,000 people in a rudimentary theater built sometime in the, uh, in the you know, first century or earlier, how could you ever hear anybody? Truth is, like, we, we, we treat people that are that, from that time frame as if they're stupid. We know everything, they know nothing. That's foolish. All right? They knew the earth better than we did. They could build a 25,000-person amphitheater with no amplification system using kind of the natural barriers that are around them, and you could hear someone sitting in the back row uh, or someone on the stage 
You could hear it perfectly in the back row, right? They knew the earth better than we did. Okay? These aren't rudimentary people. They're very sharp people and they know the earth better than we do. And so some of those things that we assume, and this is the, often the attack you'll get from people who say, uh, how can we trust the Bible? It comes from a bunch of gorillas who don't know anything. Look how far we've come. Okay? That really doesn't make any sense. Uh, of all the, uh, the, what's the seven wonders of the world or eight wonders of the world? Like, these are things that we can't figure out how they did it. Because they're such gorillas. See? Doesn't make any sense. So, uh, just that, that was, there was a lot going on in that city. The uh, religious life was vibrant and it was marked by imperial worship. So, um, I don't have any pictures to show you, but if you were to walk in, uh, Ephesus is one of the best, um, ex- excavated of the cities, the current cities of Revelation, where you can actually go in Ephesus and look around. Um, and what you would see is that imperial worship, or worship as the, of the emperor as a god, saturates the city. Okay, as you walk up and down the street, like there's, there's lines of God statues um, on the main drag. In the marketplace, um, you're surrounded by those types of things. The, um, the uh, dominant in the city was uh, the following of Artemis, okay, the goddess of the whole province and who was a fertility figure. Uh, her temple was four times the size of the Parthenon in Greece. And we talked about two Pliny's. We had a Pliny the Younger and a Pliny the Elder, both historians. Um, Pliny the Elder said it took 125 years to build that, and it was 420 foot long by 225 foot wide. That's a massive, uh, that's a massive thing. So there was a pretty big altercation in Ephesus with Paul. Do you guys remember that at all? Okay, it's in it's in Acts 19. I thought it might be worth it just kind of read it, just so we know like kind of what's going on in that time frame. Here we go. Uh, this is Acts 19, starting in verse 24. Uh, if you have a sweet heading in your Bible, it probably says something to the extent of a riot in Ephesus. Um, about, that, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, uh, that's followers of Christ, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trade and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. So even if the Christians aren't relenting to this imperial worship, you understand how they're interrupting normal lives. Okay, Paul, That's what Paul's running into right here. These, these people make the statues that people are, that are buying and taking to their house for Artemis. And Paul's saying, no, 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 these aren't real gods. Don't worship them. He's interrupting their business dealings. Um, and, and we think of that as like, oh, oh, hey, they're getting their business interrupted. We shouldn't have a problem with that. It seems fine, right? But like, yeah, that's their livelihood. They feed their kids with that. Okay? There's a person behind that problem. They need, they need Jesus, certainly, but recognize like that's where this is coming from. They're not complete, you know, barbarians here. Okay? Alright. Uh, and there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So that, that's kind of the environment that Christianity is trying to work in in the town of Ephesus. Okay. Uh, notice Paul really just wants to run in there. I love Paul. There was, um, do you guys remember at the start of Acts, there's a, um, 
uh, there's a question of who Theophilus is. He says, "Dear Theophilus, who Luke's writing to?" Okay, and one of the one of the thoughts was was that perhaps this is Paul's lawyer, uh, and he was preparing a defense of Paul. Now, here's the thing: what doesn't make any sense at all. You tell me that the Apostle Paul is farming out his discussion of Christ in front of a ruler. Like, he jumps into that. He's about to jump into a riot here because he wants some part of it. Like, I kind of dismiss that theory of Theophilus out of hand because uh, we've met Paul. I feel like he's just not the type of guy who's like, well, I'll let the lawyer take care of my history. He seems to be willing to jump in front of anybody who's willing to listen to him about Jesus. Okay. Uh, so that's that's a little bit about Ephesus. Uh, had the temple of Domitian, uh, who was the emperor at the time uh, when Revelation was, was written. Um, when Domitian's son died, I don't know if you guys saw this on Facebook, there was a coin that minted to honor his son, and there's a picture of his son sitting on the earth, he's holding seven stars in his right hand. Okay? Potential interaction uh, with what Jesus is saying um, to the uh, environment that's going on in, in Ephesus. Okay, so let's talk about what he actually says to the church. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. So Jesus knows them closely, right? These are, uh, the words are neutral. They don't imply good or bad when he says, I know your works, but it shows that he knows them. It shows that he knows them. Um, we do see, though, that in a book that's written to clarify faith, that relation to works is noteworthy. He seems, again, he cares what you do. Right? It's not just what do you believe or do you agree with Jesus. It's, it very much impacts how you act. He's gonna, he's gonna focus in on how are you behaving in light of what you say you believe. Faith is demonstrated by action, and this accounts for the New Testament demand for works in the believer which are worthy of faith. He calls them, uh, false apostles and evildoers. That's probably one group. Uh, but it's not a new problem. Like, this was a problem in the time of uh, when the Gospels were being written as well, right? That's a lot of what uh, the, the letters to the Thessalonians is defending. So the call to uh, the Colossians, the guys in Colossae, which are in, in the string of churches. They don't show up in the seven, but they're in the trade route that follows the churches. Colossae is one of them, okay? Um, we see in First John, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Okay? So it's, it's a normal thing for them to protect against ideas that are coming in to try to pervert the gospel that they've taught. They could be coming from multiple places. We said that Christianity is a unique, uh, is a unique belief system because it does not matter who you are. Everybody is welcome, right? It is very open and accepting to anyone that is willing to follow Christ. It doesn't matter your lineage or where you come from or your heritage or who you were born to or how much money you have. Okay, these are things that Christianity is not limiting, but that also means it's prone to bringing in ideas because it's so accepting people bring the things that they already believe into it. Okay, So you see Greek influences. You see even the Jewish influences who people who have accepted Jesus but are bringing some of that stuff in, the old Jewish traditions, into new Christianity. That's the whole deal with the Jerusalem Council in Acts, right? Do, do they have to circumcise? Can, can we eat the meat to the idols? Like that's the, those, These are the questions uh, that are going on. And so it's something that they very much have to protect. We have to be careful that you're not letting in um, these ideas that otherwise pervert the gospel that was brought to them. Okay. Uh, there are a uh, there are a total of seven commendations within there to Ephesus. If you count them, the things he said, you are good at this, this, this. Total of seven. John's a real shrewd possum. He, he snuck a seven in there. Um, they seem to be successful at that, though. In fact, there's a letter um, by a guy named Ignatius to the Ephesians um, that was written sometime prior to AD 117. Um, and he says, Nevertheless, I have heard of some who have passed on from this to you, having false doctrine, whom you did not allow to sow among you, but stopped your ears, that you might not receive those things which were sown by them. So it seems the Ephesian church is staying with it. Historically, uh, they're keeping out uh, false, false uh, doctrine. 
But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So what was the love they had at first? Anybody have any guess? Love for Jesus? Could be. Yeah, could be, could be love for God, love for Jesus. What else? Let me ask you this question. Just, Go ahead. Just, give, just spreading the word instead of worrying about trying to test everybody and getting focused on all of this, trying to, to bat the bad ones away. Don't forget to do the work. Don't take all this time to you know, patiently endure and test and find and all of these seven things and, and don't grow weary. Just get back to what we were doing before. Bring them in, bring them in, bring them in. So I think there's a connection there. Uh, I would agree. So like there's, there's a connection here. Uh, and I think we can see it today. In our desire to keep people from believing wrong things, we tend to err on the side that's missing love. Paul doesn't give us that option. Jesus doesn't give us that option. Okay? We want to make sure that people understand the behavior that you're doing is wrong. The things that you think are wrong. The way that you act is wrong. This isn't like Jesus. This is what Jesus would want. But we communicate those through what? Protest sign? That shows love. A billboard? I've seen all kinds of real junk billboards that communicate nothing of a love for Jesus. Right? Is it important to protect doctrine? Yeah. Jesus commends that. But if your reason for protecting doctrine is minus the love that brought the doctrine into place. That's what the, that's what the whole Testament, Old Testament system is. I love you. As a God, I'm going to communicate to my people. I will give you an identity. I will tell you what I want. That's love. Those things that He has in place for us in doctrine that behave how we act, okay, are loving things that our Father has given us. But what we've turned them into is a bat at times. Okay? That doesn't, that doesn't feel like Jesus. And I think, I think that's... I think that's the thing that he's talking to Ephesus about. Be careful that although you are protecting bad doctrine, that you're not neglecting the love that supports it, the love that brought it into existence. What we're going to see through Revelation, and you'll even see this echoed in the rest of the churches, is these, the, even the judgment that comes from God is always a call to repentance. That's what it's for. I love you. Come back to me. You need to, this, is, this is what gets your attention. Okay? So, if we divorce those things from love, I, 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 I get it. I'm, I'm like as conservative as they get when it comes to biblical doctrine. I believe the whole thing. I think it's all true. I don't have any problems with any of it. Okay? But the truth is, if I'm going to whip someone up with that Bible, or beat them across the head with it and hope that they meet Jesus through that, I'm a fool. That's blindness. Okay? So, uh, the Ephesians got a commendation from Jesus. Well done. Protecting your doctrine. Don't preach it shallow of the love that supports it. Was it Nicodemus? Like, is Nicodemus the one that comes in the night and he just really wants to know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because that could have easily been a conflict, right? You see it with the Pharisees and the Sadducees up against Jesus. Yep. And you tell me, well, I can't, well, I'm not going to tell you. And, it, and it's kind of rigid and, and my, my, this is my way and this is my way. But then at the well, go and sin no more. And how is that, that is, you know, received better than all of this. Yeah. You know. and, and I think that's the thing. It's like where we, where we have a problem, and this is, this is the other thing I think Revelation will show, um, John is, is almost always in balance here. Okay? Or, or in, I, I, think I like tandem better, where he's holding two things strongly at the same time. Okay? This isn't giving free license that says, yeah, love as you see fit, we don't care about doctrine. That's not true at all. 
Okay? And when we err, we tend to love one, one thing over the other. We're better at the beating people of the heads. We're like, yeah, they just, they need to make sure that they know what they're doing is wrong. Well, here's the deal. Holy Spirit kind of does that. Okay? You don't, we don't need another Holy Spirit. They've just not met Him. They don't know, they don't know Jesus. Okay? So we just gotta be careful that where the Bible is balanced or running things in tandem and says, you believe both of these things strong. Okay? We protect doctrine and we love like no one else loves. Then we hold both of those strong. We don't get to lean from one or the other. We don't just get to say things in a vacuum as if that love didn't exist or that we don't have to protect doctrine. Make sense? Okay, so the Ephesian church is being called to balance and we're called to that same thing. Okay, so going into this next part, remember therefore from where you've fallen, does that mean all of a sudden they've just become, you know, they they were the crackheads and now they're not anymore and now they're lording it over others trying to be overly righteous because repent is a strong word. No, so I, I think what he's calling them to is that um, the reason Ephesus is a growing epicenter of Christianity is because of the love that they're showing and communicating. The, the, so uh, that's where they, they have been. They have fallen to, um, I think they're just beating people up with doctrine. They're protecting doctrine well, but that's not coming with the love that also caused the, the spread of Christianity within Ephesus. And he's saying, remember from where you've fallen, repent, turn back and go to the place where you have been. Um, and that very much has an atta- uh, attachment to uh, to works. I will come uh, and do the works that you did at first. Okay? Uh, Alright, so he says, uh, yeah, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. They're going to show up uh, a couple of different times. Um, let's, it's unclear who they are. We don't have anything outside of the Bible um, that would specify, show us specifically who the Nicolaitans are. But they, they are tied... Um, to Jezebel in a different church, okay? And I think what we're going to, what seems to be the case with them, they also show up in a letter to Pergamum, um, is that they seem to be taking Paul's um, freedom in Christ a little bit too far, okay? Um, they're not protecting doctrine. They're just saying, yes, because you have freedom, you can do all these things and follow Jesus. Um, that seems to be the great deceit of the churches, okay? The, um, the cultural enticement that says, uh, yes, yeah, you can believe all these things, that's fine. These things are not in conflict. You can go ahead and, and do your temple worship. You can go ahead and bow down to the emperor. Um, this is, you can eat the meat. This is all fine. Okay? That, that I think is, is what the Nicolaitans are about, and it makes sense if you attach them uh, to get into some of the other conflicts that are going on within the other churches or the people that are kind of dragging them out from what they're truly to believe. Um, I think that makes sense for the Nicolaitans, and that is mostly the consensus within biblical studies um, that that is probably what they're representing. Okay? And since he didn't specify, I don't know that we have any application that otherwise would delve beyond that. Okay. Um, he says, uh, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Repentance is tied to what you do. Uh, it's not just, I feel bad, that's a personal application. Okay, our repentance is, oh no, I screwed up, I feel very bad about that. That's repentance. No, it's not. Okay, repentance is a hard, is a hard turn. Okay, it means I'm turning away from the thing that I was doing and I'm actively pursuing the, um, fighting for the other team, if you want to think of it that way. Okay? Um, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Um, so I think this is uh, this is interesting. It's an interesting thing to say. I think we like to um, we want to know what that means from like a personal salvation standpoint. Because the implication of removing lampstands seems to be debatable, but it seems to me that it's the extinction of that community. Okay, if the churches the churches were identified by lampstands, Jesus walks among them intimately, right? He knows the lampstands and says, "Unless you repent, I will remove the lampstand." So I don't think I'm probably not going to be able to answer that inquiry. Because I think it's the wrong question. I don't, I don't think that's what he's getting at. He's, it's not, he's not asking a question of uh, personal salvation. He's talking about the behavior of a community that receives its identity through Christ. 
If you're not going to, if you're not going to do these things, it doesn't match my identity anymore. Okay? There, there is a broad spectrum of theological interpretations that will fall on either side, either way more heavier than that or way more loose than that. But I think that's if we can take something from it um, that, that is safe, I think the, uh, the safe thing is that it's the extinction of that community. Its identity is, is no longer associated with Christ because they're continuing to pursue things that otherwise are not relevant to him. Okay. Do you think this is more from a place of without your repentance, you're going to bring this upon yourself? Not necessarily, I'm going to come and remove it, or I'm going to turn you over to it and allow you just to spin out. Uh, from, my, uh, from my perspective, I think it's the same thing, because he's, he's the deliverer of that judgment. That, that's true. I, like, I can't pull that out of Christ's hands. He did say, I will come remove your lampstand. Um, not it will just fall away or you let it deteriorate. He said, I will come remove it. Um, and, and it sends the, the way that that's worded does um, the underlying Greek implies an immediacy to it. Um, you need to respond to this directly. Um, but that is ultimately the con- it is a consequence of choice, um, and we'll see that show up in the, in the letters from the other churches. It is a consequence of um, if it's an if, right? So there's a that means you can you can do one thing or you can do something else. Um, so it is up to their reaction to it. Um, we said he hates the Nicolaitans. Here's the deal: um, when in doubt, hate what Jesus hates. That seems like a good idea. Um, and again, that's the, I think that's the protection of people who are saying, uh, preaching not necessarily a different uh, gospel, but are saying, uh, you, you can also do this. This is also fine. Okay, you can associate, you can do these things as well. Um, and it's not a new thing for God to hate things. In Isaiah 61, it says, For the, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. Uh, in Zechariah 8, he says, Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for all these things I hate. Um, we have biblical precedent for Jesus hating things and we should, you know, I feel like we should hate those too. Uh, he who has an ear, this is something that's going to show up. This is our last thing. Hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Um, I, this, again, this isn't necessarily new. We see this in Matthew 11. Um, it says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So I think there's two different things that they're um, they're calling us to here. The, the first one is is that this this implies that there are people that simply don't want to listen. Um, parables will do the same thing. Um, a, a lot of times we um, we package parables wrong. We say, oh, it's it's an easy way to digest something. Okay, but the way that Jesus talks about parables is they they are uh, a sifting agent. Okay? They, they basically spit people down the middle and say, look, it, it, these will make my story more, make more sense to you if you're listening to me. Otherwise, they will become more difficult and you won't understand it at all and will cause you to go farther away. Okay? It's a, his parables are a separating agent because people don't have ears to hear. And so they will be hardened. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Okay? What Jesus brings to the table, okay, some people will receive well, some people will receive worse. And parables have the distinction of either I understand it more and more deeply for having heard the parable, or it confuses me and I don't understand it all the more. Okay? Um, it also seems to mean, he said, um, who you has near to hear, this is an open letter. April mentioned that last week. I think she's right about that. Um, so the other churches can also kind of take this in. There's a reason it's being circled around. Okay? If this applies to you, it's for you. Listen to that. Uh, and that also highlights kind of our context of it moves up and down too. It, it moves beyond their time. It also can apply easily to our time. Okay, good. Is there anything to just the style of writing from John here where, uh, you know, the word from God comes and it's, I know your works and good stuff, good stuff, but repent. And then 
more good stuff and then a promise at the end. No, that's real. That's relatively unique. The promise always comes at the end. Um, his addition of uh, here's a good thing. Here's the thing I need you to change, and then, but uh, you, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. That's actually pretty unique to Ephesus. Is it? Yeah, that, that pattern will not continue. All these elements will be in there, but the uh, order does change. Um, and I take it back, there are two churches where there is no, um, there's no commendation. There is no, I know what you do, and it's good. There are two churches where, yeah. Yeah, and there are two churches where there is no condemnation. I know what you're doing, and I love it. So, um, but yeah, the order might shift around on a few of them. Ephesus is a little unique in that area. Um, eat from the tree of life. I just, uh, it was interesting to me. I'm going to throw this out there. And um, these are one of the things where um, biblical studies is kind of expanding on the interaction with Revelation and the Roman Empire. Um, I, I, I'm not sure you take all these to the bank, but just something to think about. Um, on the tree of life. So I, we have a reference. Oh, well, what's our reference? If we say tree of life, where does that take us back to? Genesis. Yeah, it takes us to the open Genesis, right? Um, and so Jesus is saying you, can, uh, uh, you get to eat from the tree of life, um, which is something that people were barred from. Okay, when they, when they rebelled against God, God said, I don't want you to eat the tree of life and live forever in your current fallen state. I put an angel upon it, it's being blocked. Okay, you can't eat that again. Um, he says, as you, as you conquer with me, you get to eat the tree of life. And basically, you're taking part in my um, everlasting kingdom. Um, it's interesting, a tree will show up in Revelation 21. Okay, we get this picture of a tree that sits in the middle. It's that tree life kind of reestablishes itself, um, and we can eat freely from it. Um, a, a possible interaction with the Roman Empire, or in Ephesus specifically, is um, what, the, what they believed with Artemis was that she was a, she's fertility, and uh, there was a connection um, between... Uh, trees were kind of the connection between spirit and uh, for the fertile world of humanity. And that the original tree that she would have come from, was an olive tree, was in Ephesus. Okay, and so there was this in within her temple. You could run to it, uh, and it was a place of refuge. So if you had done done something wrong, um, you could run in here, and basically they couldn't kill you for whatever wrong that you did. It was a um, yeah, refuge was, was the word I wanted. Okay, so you could be safe from there. Okay, um, and so th- there was um, that tree was a symbol that was kind of all over the place in Ephesus, especially all over that temple. So it would have been a strong image if you're in Ephesus to recognize um, what Christ is offering compared to what that actually offers. Christ offers permanent life. Whereas that can only offer you refuge for a short amount of time and then they could still, you know, catch you and put you in prison or whatever it is. It could just only hold you for a short amount of time. It's possible interaction between uh, the tree in the Artemis Temple and how we understand tree life. But again, I, I don't know that I, you know, I wouldn't bank your life savings on that. It's just a possible connection. Okay. Everybody go on Ephesus? All right, let, let's keep rocking so we can try to get through these. Um, Smyrna. To the church in Smyrna. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Um, the only complete, uh, Smyrna is the only complete city, the seven mentioned in Revelation 2 to 3 that still exists in its entirety. It's modern day Izmir. Um, most of the churches are, are the, um, they're, they're there, but like they're buried. Okay, they built the city on top of them, or they've only been partially excavated, that kind of thing. Um, Smyrna enjoyed a close relationship with Rome and the imperial cult. In fact, in 23 uh, BC, Smyrna was granted permission. There were ten rival cities that wanted to build a temple to the emperor Tiberius, and uh, it was Smyrna that won the competition and was able to build it. Um, they were so loyal to Rome and contained a large Jewish population which was actively hostile toward the church. Okay? And it was difficult to survive as a Christian in the city, and martyrdoms for the faith were common in Smyrna. 
Uh, again, uh, this is a different letter from Ignatius. This is two Smyrna written in the early 2nd century A.D. Um, founded that, that at the time the community was well-established and organized. Okay, so uh, it continued beyond uh, the time in which John is writing to it. And we said, what famous bishop of ours was from Smyrna? Anybody remember? Polycarp. Polycarp. Our friend Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. Um, and if you haven't had a chance to read that, the martyrdom of Polycarp that's in your packet, do it. Um, it's, it's, um, I feel bad saying it's very good, right? That seems odd to say, but like, um, it's, it's, in, it's good to be reminded. Um, of some of what they're going through. He was uh, attempted to be burned, failed, very old man, very faithful. Um, so make sure you read that. It's in your packet, or there's a link to it online in the Facebook um, group. Okay. He said, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. So we've seen that same, we've seen that word tribulation before. Do you guys remember where? The beginning of Revelation. Yeah. Your brother in the tribulation. Very good. I, John, a partner and brother with you in your tribulation, right? So again, um, sometimes that word tribulation brings us up to some kind of weird context where we say, when the church will go through a tribulation, we think things like rapture and must be happening way ahead of time. John thinks he's part of it. Jesus seems to think they're going through it. That same word at least. Okay? It's not that it can't apply to both. I'm just saying that's the same word that they're using. Um, Let's see, we've seen a reference to something that is current for the first century. The question is, what is their tribulation? What are they going through based upon what Jesus has told them? I can think of two things. Well, they're dying. Yeah. Yeah, they're being martyred. Yeah. They're being martyred. They're poor. Yeah, they're poor. And that word, um, that word poverty doesn't just mean like uh, how we think of poor. That's like indigence. They're begging. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a that's a poverty. They're in, they're in rough shape. But Jesus says they're what? Rich. But you are rich. But you are rich. Okay. It was difficult to survive as a Christian in the city of Smyrna, and modern martyrdoms were common. Do you suppose they were hiding out? You know, I don't know. I don't think they seem to find them. They must be defying the emperor, otherwise worshiping Jesus in an offensive way. If they keep catching them, right? True. So they're not hiding that one. Uh, okay. Yeah, so I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. We said that's a pretty thick burn from Jesus. This seems to represent people who are saying, we are Jews, and he's connected to a synagogue, okay? But we said our definition of who a Jew is would differ from where, where we think these people are coming from. Okay, we're making the case that um, when, when he refers to who a true Jew is, who the nation of Israel is, okay, Israel has always been God's people. God's people include uh, Gentiles. Jew, basically, if you follow Jesus, you're God's people. You're Israel. That's how Paul seems to define it. Okay, And so these are folks who are saying, no, 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 I'm a Jew. And Jesus is saying, no, I define what a Jew is. I define who my people are, and that includes these people. And so the, the terror here is they are uh, the, the remnants, the people who are... Um, Jewish in faith but not following Christ um, are otherwise part of a lot of the persecution of early Christianity. And we said that kind of made sense, right? Because as far as they're concerned, they hijacked their, their belief system. Um, they're claiming a believing in a Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but the Jewish God is a monotheistic God and that's a concept of which they're not agreeing to and say, say look, you're blasphemers. Okay, I get it. I think you can make it. I get their case. Okay, um, and also because the Christianity was considered a Jewish sect, um, some of the things that the Christians are doing to hose off the Roman government are falling on the Jews. Okay, we're saying well, these these are kind of your people. Okay, we have a reaction to that. You need to knock it off. Jews aren't very happy with what's going on here. 
Okay, so I think that makes sense. What is the synagogue of Satan? You may have a chance to look at the picture that I posted about the... Um, there's two things that I think might, he might be referring to here. Okay, um, The one is Asclepius. Asclepius is a place of healing. Okay, um, And they would refer to this as Asclepius Soter, um, the Greek word for salvation. The salvation of Asclepius, where we go to find healing. Okay, this was a major um, thing within Smyrna. People would go to be healed at this place, and um, and so there's a possibility that's referring to that as being the synagogue of Satan, where you are seeking salvation that is not from me. Okay, I think uh, it could be a combination of that and the other reference, which was Zeus. There was a great temple to Zeus on top of the mountain. Like if you would look, uh, if you were where the normal folks would be milling about where they were living, you would have to look up and this tower of this uh, temple for Zeus would kind of over, overlook the city. And it was very much looked like a throne. Okay, it had a, um, again, if you didn't, what did I do with that marker? If you didn't see it on, uh, on Facebook, if you were looking at it from like the, uh, from the sky looking down, it looked like that. So I think he talks about, um, that's not the, um, when he says synagogue of Satan, um, or where, um, hold on. Oh, shoot, no, did I move? Yeah, did. I'm in the wrong city. Oh, yeah. blast. I was gonna say, those two were no, I was talking, yeah, I was talking about something else. Shoot. I'm like, I didn't <coughs> no, that was a different city. I was say that's Pergamum. Yeah, that's Pergamum. Crap, All right, my bad. Erase. Synagogue of Satan still makes sense. Um, that, that's, uh, Pergamum talks about Satan's throne. Where the th- um, you live amongst uh, Satan's throne, and that—that that actually I think is the reference. All right, that's my bad. Sorry. Because the pool's not in Smyrna. What's that? Is the pool in Asclepius? No, no, that's in the same spot. It's in Pergamum. Okay. That's in Pergamum. Sorry, okay. my confusion. Um, okay, but I do think the synagogue of Satan is is very much tied to basically those who say they are Jews and are not. That's what Jesus is saying. Um, basically, the people who say they are my people, but I'm saying they're not because they're not following me. Okay, so I, I think that's uh, I think that's what he's getting at. Um, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. As we kind of discussed previously, this will be a theme in Revelation. Okay, perseverance, suffering for the cause of Christ. Um, listen to this from Revelation 12. It says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So that, that's a picture of uh, when Satan falls. Okay, and listen to the two things that contribute. Okay, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they have not they love not their lives even unto death. Okay, that that's the weight of which this perseverance, this sacrifice for what for following Christ, seems to carry with it. Okay, is it's coupled with the death of Christ on the cross. Now, obviously, like we're not saying greater than or even equal to, right? But we're saying coupled with, okay? That, that's, how, that's how Revelation 12 is kind of describing that. We are suffering... Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because here's the thing is we're following Jesus. Like we can't be surprised at what the end might look like. Jesus died. Jesus preached the gospel unto death. Okay, and we say follow Jesus. We're not like, oh, feed the poor. Oh, you know, reach out to those people that need it. Oh, tell them about Jesus. If we following Jesus, we follow in his steps. We talk to who we talk to. We do what he did. We'd be willing to sacrifice what he sacrificed. That includes unto death. We follow Jesus. Uh, so, so here's so that's the thing is like we, we kind of need to reorient. And again, this is a bit of a Western cultural blindness, and I think we'll see that paired out in the letter to Laodicea. Is that we just have some blindness that's inherent on where we, where we live. 
And I think we just need to know that. It's built into our culture some things that we're just blind to. And so when we think of following Jesus, we think of in the context of how do I live the life I normally live and does that kind of tinge look, look, look like Jesus a little bit? Can I have a tint of Christ to my life? But the thing is, if we follow Jesus, we follow him to the broken. He, we follow him to the poor, to the captive, and ultimately, if it comes to it, to the cross. See, as a witness, our life is our testimony, and Satan is conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony, not loving our lives unto death. That includes not only what we believe, but it includes what we do. And we shouldn't be surprised. If we love as he loved and live as he lived, it isn't a surprise that we would die as he died. That's following Jesus. Into prison for testing in ten days of tribulation. What do we do with numbers and revelation? Yeah, we weigh them. Okay? Not measure them, we weigh them. Um, I think where the connection here to this one is with Daniel 1. So in Daniel... Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego are tested for 10 days after refusing to eat the king's food. Okay? And the point was, it's, it's, uh, and this is true for uh, kind of a Jewish colloquialism, but like, it's, it's become known as a time of trial. Okay? A temporary testing. They didn't say, you're going to do this forever. Right? Um, our, our reference back to this is, test and see. And see what the outcome is. Um, similarly, in Genesis 24-55, there's uh, 10 days, which is in- indicated as like a non-permanent but a temporary time frame of testing. Okay, so I think that's where it's coming from. It's to say you will suffer, but it won't be forever. That's not, it's not a permanent thing. Just know that this will occur to you, um, but it will be temporary. And that's a lot of what our numbers are going to do. They're going to speak to uh, broad swings of time, not again, not specific amounts of time. Because the truth is, it's like, how long do you think it took the letter to get around? I feel like his 10 days is up by the time he even wrote the thing. Okay, not the point, right? It's not, it can't be a little, I suppose it could be a literal 10 days, but it simply doesn't make any sense. That's not how fast letters travel. It would have, they were like, oh, good, we've, it's already been 20 days since he wrote it. We're good to go. No troubles here, boys. And then more of them died. So it can't, literal 10 doesn't make sense. Um, I think that, that reference back to Daniel 1 probably does make sense. Do you have a question, Dan? What was it, Daniel reference? Uh, Daniel 1. Yeah, it's when, um, it's when Daniel and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, it's basically when they're saying, you, um, we want to eat our own food. We don't want to eat the meat here. And uh, can we eat our vegetables? And they came out stronger um, and more capable than the king's men. Okay. Um, Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The faithful here is pistis. It's an adjective that means being trustworthy uh, versus believing in the sense of keeping the right faith. Uh, it's the same root word that renders a belief in John 3.16. Um, again, which we've got to be careful. We, um, John 3.16 is the thing we put on the tracks that we hand out to people, right? We, we put it at the, at the football game, we get it on a little bit of sticker, and we send it to somebody and say, just believe in Jesus. But we're being disingenuous because we're not telling them what they're getting into. We follow Jesus unto death. Now, granted, you can't have every conversation with every word in the Bible at the time you see a guy. I'm with you. Okay, I get that. But our, our nature of belief isn't them say, okay, I accept Jesus try to get them baptized and leave them dripping wet and having no idea how to live and no idea what it looks like to follow Christ because the truth is if our life is defined by following Christ and we don't know Jesus we're going to stand there dumbfounded okay so that underlying belief even the things that hey just believe in Jesus just believe in Jesus that belief is tied to something more than just I agree with Christ that's not the nature of that word it's not what it means okay it's, it's a believing into the extent of uh, changing and influences who we are and what we do that's the belief uh, and again go ahead Jesus didn't call his disciples to him saying, John 3.16 plus on to death. Who just come follow me? Well, that's because it was built on what they were doing. They, they were following him, right? So you didn't have to make a, a works case to the disciples. They were following him already. Yeah, but... They didn't just believe him. They followed him. Right. But even 
even as they were following him, they had no idea what he was talking about when it came to pick up your cross and follow me. No, they did it anyway. That's the point. Right? That's the point. They were still there. Even when everybody else left. Right? Even when he said offensive things and everybody bailed because they didn't like what he was saying, they said, I'm still following. And that, that's what we're called to. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, and that's the thing is like, because we're separated from that, we have to, we actually have to digest what it means to believe and follow. Whereas, like, their following was evidence of their belief. Well, and also before the Holy Spirit. Uh, given to everybody, yes, I would agree with that. Yeah. Well, because when he, got, when he did die, they left him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Agreed. Um, let's see. For a crown, of, he says, uh, I will give you the crown of life. For the crown of life, there's a number of possible connections here. I don't know if these are too big of a deal. Um, the crown of life, uh, they thought, could be garlands that are worn in the service of the pagan temple in Smyrna. Eh, maybe. Um, or the circle of buildings and towers which crowned the, the city in that city um, to look like a, like a crown, uh, potentially like a crown of light above the head like generally given to divine figures. Maybe that's what he's getting at. Um, but again, in a basic sense, we can see it as everlasting life in Christ. Kind of like the tree, tree of life to Ephesus. Okay, I think that's, that's uh, the right way to render that. Uh, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This concept will show up again in Revelation 20, um, where it's defined as a lake of fire. In Judaism, a distinction here is made between a physical death that everyone suffers and the fate of those who experience judgment in the world to come. And it might be echoing Daniel 12, uh, this is Daniel 12, 2, and it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Okay? I think that's his reference for not hurt by the second death. Pergamum. I want to be able to break out my bad, uh, my bad drawing again. What a disaster. All right. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So Pergamum continues in the circle of Asian churches. It's about 40 miles north of Smyrna, and it stood on a hill a thousand foot in height. Uh, Pliny, and this is, I think, Pliny the Elder, describes it as by far the most distinguished city of Asia, and it became the seat of government of the Roman province of Asia in 133 B.C. There was a giant altar 800 feet above the city erected to Zeus, See previous wrong information that I was giving about Smyrna and please apply to Pergamum. Uh, also worship centers for Athene, Dionysus, and Asclepius uh, called Soter or Greek for Savior. Uh, Asclepius the Savior. Um, and that was a famous healing center. And Pergamum Christians likely came into conflict with the imperial cult again because of those things. And they were the first Asian city allowed to construct a shrine to the, uh, a shrine to the worship of a living ruler. Uh, that was Augustus in 29 B.C. So he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So likely the Satan's throne, like I said, I think it's that, I think it's that um, Zeus. I think it's that Zeus altar. It looks a bit like a throne. If you look on the picture on Facebook, like you'll see it. Um, that seems like a, um, the most likely reference to this, although it could also kind of reference that um, people's following of uh, Asclepius. But I think the Zeus case makes a lot more sense. Um, 
the serpent, that symbol of Asclepius, was everywhere to be seen in Pergamum. And uh, Dave brought this up. So like that, that uh, snake on a stick is not a new symbol. There's, that actually dates back in many different reference. But uh, Asclepius was one of those that had it, had the, the snake kind of twirl around the stick uh, as a symbol of healing. Um, some think of this as Rome being the seat of Satan in the west. And uh, Pergamum is the seat of Satan in the east. Um, and they're using kind of some sections of Revelation to do that. I, I don't know. I, I think that might be a bit of a stretch. I think it's um, with as personal as Jesus has gotten in all the other cities. I think it makes much more sense um, with the personal reference that's there as opposed to like a broad characterization to say Rome is uh, where Satan dwells in the, in the west and this one in the east. Um, the Pergamum Church is holding fast to the name. Now, when we say the name of Jesus, um, or hold fast to my name, it means kind of um, the summation of his being and character. Kind of like when you're, hold, you're holding to me and everything that encompasses. Okay, um, Even in that environment. And we see that um, using the name of Christ in a similar way in Acts 4. Uh, it says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you as well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So this isn't like a creepy people say Jesus and they, and they rise up, right? That's not what he's getting at. What they're saying is that through the power of Jesus, something that accompanies who he is, his character, the full summation of his being, that is the means through which people are healed, where people are raised. Okay, that's what they're getting at. Okay, so when they say name, there's a lot more bundled into that than just we think of it as title. Okay, uh, witness. When it's talking about um, Antipas, we said uh, the underlying word for witness was. You remember? Uh, no. Martyr. Martyr. Yeah, martyrs, and that's what that's what's happened to this Antipas. Okay, he's died. Um, he was a he was a martyr. Um, that's that underlying word for witness. He dies as a faithful witness to Christ. Um, the way the Greek is worded here may point to Jesus saying that the church at Pergamum was faithful at a specific time. Um, so it may not be speaking broadly. It might be saying whatever occurrences or machinations caused Antipas's death, you were faithful yet. Okay, um, it's possible that that that's the way the Greek is uh, is worded there. Um, so oh, his his way of death is pretty nasty. So um, the historical record of his death is that he was roasted to death inside a brazen bull. So they would cast a like a bronze bull that had a door in one side, and they would you know stick a dude in it, and then they would start a fire underneath the, the metal bull uh, until he would be roasted. And they put like a um, something in the mouth um, so that his screams would come out as like a bull's noise. Um, that was the way our, our, uh, uh, our brother Antipas uh, seemed to have met his end. Um, Where's that reference? Yikes! Um, I'll get you. It's um, I'll get you the reference for it. Okay. But it is mentioned that it was at the altar of Zeus. That he, that that's where he was killed. Mm-hmm. Um, the seed of Satan, ancient Pergamum. So I would say it says uh, who was killed among you. Where Satan dwells, I don't know if that implies it was actually there, that that it was in the city. I don't know if it implies necessarily that it's there, but it could be. I don't know how specific that where where he dwells is at, whether that means like the altar itself or just the city that he's in, because like Jesus refers to it broadly as a city. Um, so I, I don't think it's impossible. I just I just don't know for sure. Um, okay, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So despite their faithfulness, they have allowed false doctrine or teaching. They, okay, Ephesus could have helped. 
right? So they're, they're allowing some of these things to convince them to believe things that they shouldn't otherwise believe. Um, the references, anybody remember who Balaam is? Yeah, he's the, um, the ancient, like, witch doctor, whatever you want to call him, the dude that tried to curse the Israelites as they were coming into the land of uh, Balak, but he couldn't curse them because they were blessings, so he kept blessing them instead. Yeah, so this is our prophet with the talking donkey. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, which doctor, as the movie put it, prophet of God, oh, which doctor? <laughs> he does the wrong thing. You're, you're right about that. Um, so, so yeah, he's, he's got the talking donkey. He is, um, uh, they're offering him money to curse the people of God. He, he won't do that. Um, but he ultimately is responsible for telling them it's okay to do both. That it's okay to worship God and otherwise worship the, um, the other belief systems that are around where the people of Israel are and points them to that deceit. Okay, that's just if I'm uh, move. If you want, if you want, it, you can find it in Numbers 25 and Deuteronomy 23. Are some places to look for that. <laughs> um, what's likely going on here, like if we can kind of put our pieces together on what we know, what's going around them, is that people are teaching that it's okay to sacrifice to idols, okay, or have sex with the temple prostitutes. Okay, this is this is fine. You can believe the things you believe about Jesus, and these are also okay. Okay, that seems to be the problem with the Nicolaitans. It's going to be the problem with Jezebel in the, in the next church. Um, and it seems to be the issue that's going on here. To the one who conquers, I will give uh, some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. How might we uh, understand this verse? What's the hidden manna? What's manna? In, let's assume no one's hiding it. What's manna? <laughs> Provision from God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So go ahead and use the. What, what's the factual? What's the historical reference? What, when did God provide it? Uh, Israelites in the wilderness. In the wilderness. Yeah. God fed them using the manna. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of an intimate thing, right? God provides for you. He's actually creating manna. Now they took some of that and they put it in a jar. I'll read this to you. This is from Exodus 16. It says, "Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey." Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. Okay, it's in the Ark of the Covenant. I didn't realize that. Collect manna. There's a jar of manna in there sitting in the Ark of the Covenant. Okay. Um, Hebrew tradition. Is that a question? Uh, no, well, Hebrew tradition is that when the temple was destroyed at the time of the Babylonian exile, um, either Jeremiah or an angel, I think they're open to both, it shows up differently depending on what you read, um, rescued the Ark of the Covenant and its sacred objects. Um, they were hidden in the earth to be preserved until the Messianic age when they would be restored. That's the Hebrew tradition. Okay, Every once in a while, someone will claim to have found it in Ethiopia. That's always where it is. Ark's always in Ethiopia, that's the deal. Okay, So if you see someone be like, we found the Ark of the Covenant, it's in Ethiopia... Yeah, okay, that's not, it's not old news. That's, it's always where they find it. Okay, so... Custis says it's in Jerusalem. <laughs> so the hidden manna is basically just a remembrance tool. Yeah, so think of it, so... Um, this so to the conquerors, I will... I don't know what that means. So if he says that I will give you um, the hidden manna, okay, the thing that I set back to show that I care for my people, okay... So if, if that's what the nature of manna is, and to say that some was set aside, and now it is, it is that which was used as a demonstration to my people throughout time to show how I care for them, that, I, think that's what he's, I think that's what he's saying. Okay, you basically have a close relationship with me. And in, this is true for all literature, by the way. So even if you're reading a non-biblical book, you're reading a book, anytime you see people eating or a meal, there's a sense of intimacy to that. 
Okay, especially in Middle Eastern cultures, even more. Um, but but you're um, you have to be close. Um, there's hospitality. There's intimacy involved with sharing a meal together. Okay, and and I think God to bring up say I will give some of the hidden manna. Um, I, I'm providing not only am I providing for you, but I'm sharing this intimacy with you. I'm feeding you. Um, I think that's a strong thing to reinforce what's going on um, for them, um, especially with what they're up against. Okay, what about the white stone with the new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it? Jesus social security card. Jesus social security card. Okay. Uh well he seems to know our current name. He says he's gonna give you a new name, but he knows your current name, but let's let's stick with the concept, okay? What why um uh, who gets to name people? Um so it shows what's your relationship to something if you get to name it. Yeah, you're responsible for it. That's why. That's why when, I, when my kids are born, like we get to name the baby. Uh, it belongs to me, and we're responsible for it. Yeah. So if God says, "I give you a new name," I get to give you a new name. What What is this communicating to them? Yeah, yeah. You belong to me. You belong to me. I have an intimacy with you. I have a closeness with you, which which kind of reinforces our understanding of manna, right? Okay. What he's communicating is, is I know what you're going through, um, but those who conquer, you have a, you have a connection with me, an intimacy with me. I will give you a new name. I am responsible for you. You belong to me. Okay. That's encouraging. That's encouraging to the church, and that that's basically what they have at the um, uh, as conquerors. Well, the thing was like here at church, we got three dams here. If someone has a dam, all three of us respond. But when Jesus calls our name, we're the only one. It's two of us, and it's our response. I'm gonna have to take your word on that, Custis. Maybe he likes the name, you know, Leroy, and he calls everybody. Like I don't say not everybody's Leroy. Yeah, maybe Leroy one. <laughs> does white have anything, does white have anything to do with that? I, I think it does. I think um, I don't think it makes the concept different, but um, white is tied to God. People in the Book of Revelation. Okay, it's um, it seems to be a conquering and a purity. As a matter of fact. Um, um, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't think the stone. I, yeah, I don't know. I couldn't think of anything that's tied specifically to that. Yeah. What's that? Oh yeah. No, that that would make sense. In fact, um, there's a pillar reference that's going to come up as like you will be a pillar in the temple of my God. That has the same has the same concept. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Well, then they do that for gods and stuff at the temples. Yes. Yep. Yep. As a matter of fact, when um, we talked about this a little bit, but when Domitian dies, he's such a bad emperor that they go and etch his name out because he's such a bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I think there's just that the reward is a closeness with Christ. And here's the deal: if we're looking for something more than that, we're looking for the wrong place. If your reward is a closeness, intimacy, caring of of Christ with you, that's the reward you want. Okay, that's what you're looking for. That's what your faithfulness points to. Okay, so I think that makes sense here. All right, Thyatira, to the church in Thyatira. Buba, how am I doing on time? Uh, researching. 1030. 1035. Okay, that's not awful. To the church in Thyatira. <laughs> uh, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. 
Behold, I will throw her unto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as in when earth, excuse me, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, so what I did post that Thyatira was a little bit difficult. Um, we don't have, it's basically not been excavated at all. Um, we have very little information about it. It's, um, it's the longest and most difficult of the seven letters, and it's addressed to the least known, least important, and least remarkable of the Asian cities. Um, its history is largely unrecorded, and we lack archaeological evidence to uncover its past. Okay, it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit of a dark, um, uh, from what we know about it, compared to some of the other churches. Um, Thyatira is between Pergamum and Sardis, which is in a long valley that connects two rivers. Um, there's also a road in the valley that connected Smyrna and Constantinople. Okay, so there's a lot of the trade traffic that would uh, go through there. Um, it's one of those cities where the situation exposes it to destruction by every conqueror. It's a, it's a bit like a like a Belgium. Okay, Belgium's always in between people fighting, uh, and so like they're always getting destroyed, and it's always worth rebuilding, and then you just get destroyed again. Okay, that's a little bit of uh, Thyatira. Um, let's see, uh, they were entrenched in uh, trade guilds. Okay, a group of tradesmen that got together to do their trade, and each each trade guild in a Roman society would have a patron god. Okay, that would be um, kind of represent that guild, and a lot of times you'd have to sacrifice to the god um, to to be part of the guild. And we said that that's going to run into problems. I think it shows up here in Thyatira is that if you're not willing to do that, which the Christians largely weren't, you weren't able to be part of the guild. Um, going back to uh, our trade guild in um, in Ephesians, right, where they're like, hey, this Paul's screwing us up here. We can't sell this. We don't have a livelihood. It's very much a real problem. I'm not sacrificing whether I can make money for my family for my belief in Christ in the United States. Okay, they are. Okay, that's what that's the type of thing that they're running into. Um, all right, it says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not. Uh, oh shoot, did we start the? Did we go through the beginning of it? No, we didn't. Um, okay, so he says when he starts going through this, I have this against you. What's I know your works, your love and faith and servant and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. That's interesting because that was not the. Uh, that's the opposite of the accusation to Ephesus. Ephesus. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. They're pushing on. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So I think this is probably caught up in the trade guilds. I think that's what he's referring to is that basically you're trying to say that you can do both of these things, which is the same problem with the Nicolaitans, right? Um, is that you're saying both of these things are consistent and I'm saying they're not. Which, if we have an application here, I, we, we probably don't spend enough time considering this, but like, we... We run risks of saying these two things are compatible. Okay? The, the, the basic nature of our society, we would say, well, look, my kids gotta eat. Uh, I gotta have a job. Certainly Christ knows the type of sacrifice that I, that I would have to make here and I don't have, I'm not gonna do it here. Okay? That's what they're up against and they're dying for it. We, ba- we will barely be interrupted from our day-to-day programming. Okay? Or for our expectations of what an American dream looks like to live a life that is otherwise faithful to Christ. I'm not saying God's calling you that. Like, what I'm saying is, what do you have on the table? 
do I have everything on the table that says I'll follow you with everything I have? Or am I like, well, I have a, I have a certain way to live, a certain way that I want to live, and everybody else lives that way. Heck, even most Christians live that way, uh, have this level of income, have this type of status, they do these types of things. Well, surely God understands that I won't, uh, I won't admit to this, or I won't follow him in this way, or I won't be faithful in this thing for consistency with the culture that surrounds me. We're born into a little bit of a blindness. Because we're not running up to the, to the knife, we think we don't have a knife at our throat, and I think we just got to be careful with that. Okay. How do we test that? I mean, that can't be tested until it's tested. Uh, You're putting out something that it can't really, because nobody's taken my children and put a knife in my throat. So what? What you're saying when I put them on the table is what I'm putting on the table, but it's not really being tested. Well, so I wouldn't limit it to that though. So like, I'm not saying that our testing is just is someone willing to kill me, right? Like, am I willing? Is my um, is my job on the table, right? Am I willing to lose my lose my job because it? in my faithfulness to Christ, with whatever circumstance that might bring up, right? The truth is, it's not really happening. That's, that's where the blindness comes in, right? Like, we, we might have a hard time even recognizing it, because it's, it's not as prominent. I know very well that if, you know, if I'm in some of these cities and I refuse to bow down to the, uh, to the emperor's idol, they're, they're going to try to burn me, right? I get that. It's very, it's very easy. Where we run a risk is a bit of the cultural seduction that says, well, what do I have on the table? It doesn't feel as drastic, and I don't, I don't necessarily know what's at risk. So, again, I, like, that's why I don't have a ton of like, specific examples. We're, not, we're simply not running into that, I think, as much. But I think it's something we have to be careful about because we, you will notice that move. You will notice that move where like, we've, we have the risk of accepting something that we feel would be like a gray area, but it's a faithfulness of God issue. So you're right, but that's what I'm saying. I think we just have to be aware of that. To make sure that we've got everything on the table that says, you know, I'm not married to my life here. I'm not married to my lifestyle um, if it otherwise comes into con- conflict with my faithfulness to Christ. We're fortunate that that's really not the case, for the most part. Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, let's see. Are we give you according. He's harsh. Is he not? Jesus is harsh. We lose our Mister Rogers, Jesus. I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Physical children? What does it mean, Matt? Strike, strike her children dead. Uh, followers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, pe- people that come from her, basically, that are products of, of her and what she believes. Uh, that's not any less harsh, though. We're going to have to embrace the Jesus that acts like that. <laughs> but here's the thing, that we're tolerating. That's not a follower. That's just a... You just ignore it kind of thing. Or you just, you know, there's no paying attention to it. You live among it and you, you know, you're, you're allowing it to happen. You're tolerating it, but it's not. Then it goes into, and those that are playing on her, you know, playing on her side of the fence. So think of it from a communal aspect. So if I have, if I have a community, we're tolerating. Well, so that, that's that's what I'm getting at. So like from a community perspective, if he's writing to a church um, as a community, and um, some of that community is otherwise being taken in by this, and I'm tolerating it, right? So I think I think that's where their I think that's where their burden is. The burden for these folks is that if like obviously someone's falling on on the side of Jezebel, someone's been taken in, and he's talking to communities, not individuals. And so in saying, if this is going on in your churches, are you doing enough? I think that's kind of the implication. Is like you, you seem to be tolerating this and not standing for your for your brothers and sisters who have been taken in. That's how, that's how I would I think would understand or at least reconcile that thought. Did you have a did you have a thought on it? Well, I was just saying, tolerated could be like you know welcoming them into the church. Mm-hmm. 
you know, just allowing them to, you know, the letters to the church. So, you know, not necessarily that the people in their everyday lives are already dead as well when they're out on the street, but maybe even, you know, welcoming them into the church or already them inside the church. It, that could be too. I think you have, um, you, you have, yeah, you could have a couple options there. It could be that, which is, I think some of the protection that they're running into in the other churches too is um, for our desire this is, this is where that holding both in tandem, right? For a desire to otherwise bring people to Christ, you can't otherwise alter what Christ is saying because of it. And so you have to protect that. And that, that very well could be a toleration of that too. Yeah. Yep, I could see that. Okay. Okay. Uh, but for the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold his, this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, I think that's a joke. I think Jesus is being sarcastic, like one of these deep things of Satan items. Uh, which should be funny. It's hard to see Jesus being funny when he's yelling at people. But like, I don't know. It implies that there's some kind of deep things of Satan that I, I think he's kind of mocking him a little bit. Um, but he says, I do not lay any other burden on you. It does not, uh, the exact nature of the deep things of Satan is unclear. Um, but it does sniff of a couple things. So it, it represents people who claim to be knowledgeable, who know deep things of Satan, but who obviously don't know true things. And that's why I think there's, there's a bit of a sarcasm, sarcasm in Jesus' voice there. Um, secondly, it rings a little on the synagogue of Satan stuff hit on earlier. Like, I think there's other tangible reference that we might be able to tie it to with what they're talking about. Well, you know, like the secret societies that they have around it is, well, until you get all to this level or to this point, you won't know this point. Yeah. Really? Right. And, and the truth is, like, they know a lot of things about the society that they put together that claims to know a lot of things. You know what I'm saying? So like, I think that's probably where some of the mockery is like, well, we know real deep stuff. Well, no, you don't. <laughs> but, uh, okay. So I, th- yeah, I, yeah, I think that's probably a good comparison. Um, oh, it says, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Um, so Jesus, Jesus reiterates perseverance here, but this time it's pointing to keeping my works until the end. And it's the plain and simple nature of following Christ. The back half of the paraphrase, uh, this is from Psalm 2, um, which is, we generally agree that it's a messianic song pointing to Christ. Uh, Psalm 2 says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Um, and so I, he's got a, we've got a connection there to what's promised to David, to Christ, ultimately to the church, which is a pretty good lineage. If you're going to have a lineage of stuff, you want to go David, Jesus, us, that's pretty cool. Um, it does say it, it, we, there is biblical support for as followers of Jesus that we will share in his final rule. Matthew 19 says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you, have followed me, uh, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. We said Son of Man is a good reference back to where? Daniel 7. Daniel 7. Good. Everyone gets a piece of candy. Okay. No, I'm just kidding on that candy thing. It's a, the promises I make work on multiple planes. It's true, maybe in the future, maybe in the current. Piece of candy. Piece of candy. <laughs> you and John. I'm just saying, we both love Jesus. Isn't that enough? <laughs> Second Timothy says the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. Right. So we talked about this a little bit. It was just be careful. Um, I love the perspective that says um, uh, that, that ele- any perspective that elevates Jesus, I'm for. Okay, but don't reduce who you have become in light of Him, and and what that means to how we live. Okay, you, you've, you, your identity is changed in Jesus Christ. 
Um, you don't need to think less of yourself to think more of Jesus. We just think more of Jesus. Okay? Um, but like we are, uh, we reign with him. That's something that is a promise into the kingdom. Heirs to, heirs to the kingdom. We said kingdom and priest, right? That was one of our references in, the, in uh, Revelation 1. Um, certainly in authority we have a subservient to Christ, but that which pointed to King David and then pointed to Jesus and he directed at his church. That's that reference from Psalm 2. The conquerors promised Christ-like authority over the nations. Um, in this sense, all, by the nations we mean all opposed to God. Okay? But when does this occur? Like when, when are we supposed to think of that, you know, the reigning and the uh, kingdom and priest stuff? He says, all of the other promise seem to be tied to the end, meaning the second life of the believer. And we should likely see it that same way. Well, like when all that comes to complete fruition, just like when Jesus comes to his full fruition as well, right? Um, there's a, there's a, it happens later in Revelation where Jesus himself has a new name. And I think it's, I think part of the, the discussion around that is we still don't know all of Jesus, right? Like we have what we've, what we've been shown. Um, but we have, uh, he conquered on the cross, but there's like a, there's a physical, like, hands-on conquering that goes on where we basically get to take in the full nature of his character. And I wonder if that's where the new name for Jesus concept even comes from. Um, but just, uh, just something to think about, I guess, um, like as to when that thing would occur. Uh, alright, here we go. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What, what are you shaking your head for, Booba? What's the morning star? The star thing. I've been trying to chase down. Okay. Because obviously it's the sun. What did the sun mean to them from a uh, symbolic perspective? Because, well, so my Bible leads me back to Malachi 4.2, which is a comment on the sun. Okay. It talks about that. Then there's some Second Peter stuff that talks about giving of the morning star. But I don't know if I'm missing a cultural reference to what the sun is supposed to be. Uh, the Malachi 4.2 thing says something about... Uh, uh, and the rising of the sun uh, is a healing factor to it. There's like a, okay. a healing thing for Malachi. And it seems like it's a coming of the day of the Lord thing at the end of Malachi. Okay. So um, I kind of got lost in, in if, I'm not, if I'm not hitting the cultural thing with the sun. Um, well, first of all, way to Bible dig, Booba. Good work. I love that. Um, so I think we have an answer, um, but I think it's in Revelation. Okay. I think within the context of Revelation, I think this, that might answer it in a clean way. Okay. Um, but I, I don't know that those references are, are implicitly wrong either. Okay, oh. so here's here's um, just a quick background on the Morning Star. There's lots of options of what this means. First of all, um, uh, have anybody seen um, the movie Dogma? Yeah, you seen that? So it's been a long time, but like one of them, one of them who's supposed to be a fallen angel refers to um, Satan as the Morning Star. Yeah, um, which is true. The Latin the Latin word um, uh, for Morning Star is Lucifer. Okay, so there's now I don't think there's a connection here to that, but uh, in general it's. Just, it's interesting how that, how that word is used. Um, Domitian was described as the morning star when he became the emperor. Um, the morning star is also uh, a reference to Venus. The god Venus, symbol of victory. Um, but here, I looked for cultural connections that I thought would make sense there. I don't know that I found one that I thought was overly compelling. There are some people that will make a good case for it. Um, but l- look at Revelation 22.16. Jesus describes himself as the bright morning star. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So, I think he's given himself. Like, it's the same, same kind of promise we saw, right? An intimacy with Jesus, a relationship with Jesus. Like, that makes sense to me. Um, I think there, the other ones are options. And, and again, symbols and words can peel like an onion. There could be multiple waves of which this plays on. But I think as it sits right there, like, um, that seems right and consistent with how he's otherwise ended some of the other letters. Okay? He's promising him the stuff that, and that comes with him and his character. Okay. Uh, all right. Sardis. Sardis. 
Uh, to the church in Sardis, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, Sardis is about 50 miles east of Ephesus. It's on uh, Mount Molus, overlooking the fertile plain of the river Hermas. Um, it had an acropolis. So, um, in fact, polis, uh, where we get our modern word politics. Okay, polis is a Greek word meaning city, and acro meaning highest point. Okay, so when we say acropolis... Highest point in city. Uh, it was almost impregnable, like very difficult to be able to get into. Um, it was made of perpendicular rock walls that rose on three sides to 1,500 feet above the valley. Okay? They felt pretty safe in the Acropolis. Um, as Sardis was developed, actually the, the name Sardis is plural um, because there's two sections of the city. You have uh, kind of the part that's up where the Acropolis is, and there's a lower city that was built on the banks of the Pactulus River, which is just below it, um, and that's why it has a plural name. There was a saying... Uh, in the ancient world, and it basically went, um, you're as likely to do that as you are to capture the Acropolis of Sardis. Okay? It's a, yeah, it doesn't seem very likely. It doesn't seem like you're going to get that. Good luck. Okay? Yeah, correct. Yeah, very similar, similar reference. Okay? Yeah, to ca- capture, uh, capture the Acropolis of Sardis, uh, that, that's about as likely. Uh, Sardis, however, was captured multiple times um, because they were sleeping. Comfortable that they were, um, that they were secure in their Acropolis when they were not. Um, Cyrus the Persian, who's going to show up in Daniel, that's the Cyrus, okay? Um, he wants to take this uh, city from uh, the military leader that's there in Croesus, and so they're approaching us, and, and the Croesus is getting defeated in the lower part of the city. He says, well, let's just, go, let's just go to the Acropolis and we'll wait this thing out, no problem. So, so that's what they do. They go back to the Acropolis and they kind of hang out, and um, uh, Cyrus is waiting, and about two weeks, two weeks in, they're not making much progress. Um, but then he decides, let's just let's just send someone over the wall. Let's see if we can get somebody up in there. And they stopped guarding it. They were so confident that no one could uh, get up the Acropolis or make their way over the wall that they didn't have anybody guarding it. The guy went over the gate, or go, goes over the wall, opens the front door, they storm it, and Sardis is taken. Okay? That, that's the first time. Second time, Sardis was captured. And this is AD 14. Uh, excuse me, Alexander the Great captured it in 323 B.C. because they gave up. Okay, they were watching and uh, they, they they felt scared and they thought someone might come over, so they just gave it up and they opened the doors and they let him in and Alexander the Great captured it. Antiochus, uh, I believe it's the second, captured in 224 B- BC. Same problem. They were they were asleep. No one was guarding the place. Okay, behind the wall, they said, "Look, we're safe." And uh, same thing happens. They send the guy over the over the wall, opens the door, and uh, they were able to capture Sardis. So, uh, did we see some references to that? or what seemed like references to that um, in what Jesus wrote to the church at Sardis. Wake up. Wake up. up. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains. She says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Right. Well, that's happened before. Right? Yes. Yeah. Very good. Um... So they're just generally not prepared. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, they, they thought they were secure, they basically. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah, the word, um, so the, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Yeah, it's like you, you have this, you're, you're, um, or, or, or overconfident, potentially arrogant in, in, uh, this, your status. Uh, and I'm telling you that you're dead. Wake up. Wake up. Jesus, uh, Jesus brings the truth on what they think is true and what is ultimately true, and this has been something that's borne out for them. Um, he also makes a reference to one who, um, you have few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they walk with me in white. Sardis was, um, was known for its, uh, its textile stuff. Um, it, they, they, they made some very fine, um, uh, what am I thinking of? Not cloth. What do you weave with? What am I thinking of? Fibers. Yeah, something. Things you make clothes with. That's what I'm getting at. What's the boy word for it? Linens. I like it. It's, it's not linens. It's not right. But anyway, they made nice stuff. Witch doctor. Yeah, witch doctor. Prophets of God. I'm with you. Talking doggy. So, um, yeah, so, so they, they made, and it was a dark. It was a, like a dark, uh, I think it was like a dark brown or a darkish blue or something like that. Okay? Um, and they were very proud of it. They were very, um, uh, thought that their stuff was impressive. They were a wealthy city because of that. And then Jesus, what does Jesus tell them though? He says that you are, you have soiled your clothes. Okay? Um, there are a few names of people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Which is funny, because like, the, the reason that their, um, um, their clothing and stuff is, is so worth is because they have dyes that other people don't have. Laodicea has the same thing. Okay? Um, and so you're able to take something that is of a color and dye it, and now it's this different color. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I got white. Okay? Again, it refers to, uh, as a worth of God's people, uh, and shows that they are otherwise, uh, for they are worthy. And the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. So the other thing, um, with Sardis, I thought there was something on. Yeah, they're outwardly alive, but spiritually dying. Um, oh, you know what I thought was interesting? They don't have the same issues as other churches. What, what did, what has he had to, to, to congratulate most of the churches on that Sardis is not struggling with? Uh, think of what's, what's positive. What does what Jesus encourage the other churches in? Because they have what? Love. Kept what they have heard. Persevered. Persevered. Yeah, yeah. Perseverance, right? Like you, yeah. He, he kept the faith. You, you persevered. You might. You're dying at my hand. You're being faithful to my name. Yes. Now, Sardis gets nothing like that. Okay. They don't get the commendation that the other churches do because they're not likely not prone to persecution. Right? If they're not doing anything, if they, they don't get a call to, to, to stay steadfast, they're not drawing the attention that everyone else is drawing. It seems though that they, that they are not worth persecuting. The fight for real doctrine is lacking so bad that doctrine isn't even noticed. Okay? Jesus has not found anything they do to be complete. That was his words. I've not found anything you do to be complete in the eyes of my God. Sardis needs a new beginning. They need to start afresh. Uh, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I come against you. Um, we see that same thing in 24. It's not a nature of quiet. Okay? It's a nature of randomness. Okay? If, if you knew when the thief would come, you would put a guard because you don't know when the thief will come. That's, it's a randomness. Okay? Um, the lesson for them is to be prepared. Uh, there is hope in Sardis. Right? That's where they say the people who have not sewed their garments, they will walk in, with Christ in white for they are worthy. Um, and I'll tell you this now because I think this will show up elsewhere in Revelation. But like this potential clothing in white may carry a reference to a Roman triumph. Okay, so when Rome, if you have a great military victory, what would happen is is that you would uh, apply for a triumph, and the Senate would either agree or not agree to give you this triumph to basically celebrate your victories um, and also honor the God who helped you be the victor. 
So what would happen is if you were the person, let's say I conquered, uh, I'm, the name's uh, leaving me at the moment, but like one of the guys conquered uh, in Ethiopia. And so he led, uh, he led this, think of it as a parade, um, and you are on four horses or elephants, which is the Ethiopia one, it's called a quadriga. And you, you basically lead this um, procession through the city. And all the people in the city would wear white that day. Um, to celebrate the victory, to show um, the, as people kind of wound through the streets, they would be lined with all these people in white clothes. Um, and so what they would do is you'd bring the spoils of war with you. You'd demonstrate all the, uh, all the stuff that you, that you conquered, everything that you brought back. Um, you would make slaves of the rulers in the other city, and you would bind them. They would be bound and march through the streets so that everyone gets to shame them. Okay, you own them. Your gods are more powerful than their gods. They would bind you and run you through the city. In fact, if you guys remember, if you've at least heard the names uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, okay, Mark Antony was um, uh, was a Roman general and um, who was having uh, dalliances with Cleopatra and um, <coughs> excuse me, the um, Augustus um, basically came and. and conquered them and they both committed suicide and one of the reasons this thought is that they did not want to be part of his Roman triumph they did not want to be shamefully led through the city bound to be mocked and then ultimately what happens is they lead them up to the temple of whatever god they thought supported their particular venture generally uh, Jupiter and then the conqueror would slay them on the steps of Jupiter to honor the god okay um, I bring that up uh, because one, I think that there may be something about that, about all God's people wearing white. You're going to see, remember, um, remember we talked about the martyrs under the throne and they're giving a white robe to wait. Um, I think there might be um, an interaction with that Roman triumph, especially when it comes to the binding of Satan. But we'll talk about that when we get there. Okay. But just kind of keep that in mind as a potential, as a potential image when we hear white. What's that? Eight, Eight right now. Okay, sweet. Uh, we got two more. I think we're going to make it. Um, ooh, and it, um, at the, he says walk, um, Yeah, they will walk with me. So that's a cool reference, right? Because that's, again, there's an intimacy there. So one of the things that Jesus is hammering home is like, I know you. I know you intimately. I walk faithfully among the church, on the lampstands, among my churches. Okay? When we say, you get to walk with me side by side with Jesus. He's, He's reminding them of a sense of intimacy and connection with Him. Okay, so I think it's a cool, it kind of, it calls us back to, uh, people that walk with Jesus have a close relationship, like guys like Enoch. Okay? He walked with God. Noah. Um, in, in the book of life, uh, which is the last reference there, in the classical world, the name of a person condemned to death was first erased from the role of citizens, or what they called the book of life. Okay, Sardis had um, kept the citizen registers for the Persian and Seleucian empires. So if you were going to die or condemned to death, they would blot your name out of the book of life. Okay, And, he, and what he's saying is that your, your name will be preserved. So I think that there's also kind of a, of a close city reference there for them as the people who hold the books or the role of citizens for them. Uh, finally, Jesus will confess the names of the faithful for before God and his angels. He'll say, God, Leroy 1, Leroy 2, Leroy 3. Philadelphia. That was funnier than you guys are acting. Um, here we go. And the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
The city of Philadelphia is less than 30 miles southeast of Sardis and lies at the eastern end of a broad valley that leads down to the Aegean Sea near Smyrna. Um, its strategic location was at the crossing point of trade routes uh, leading to the regions of Phrygia, Lydia, and Mysia, making it commercially important. Okay, there was a lot of trade that went through the city of Philadelphia. Um, its economy was largely based on industry and agriculture. Um, in AD 17, that city, along with 11 others, suffers a devastating earthquake. Earthquake, excuse me. Um, and it, it, it's a leveling earthquake which affects the contemporary world as the most catastrophic disaster in living memory. Okay, it was a massive, massive earthquake. Um, Tacitus, who was a historian, claims that Sardis was the worst hit, but he adds that Philadelphia was excused the payment of the tribute for five years because of the damage. It was hurt so bad that the Roman emperor basically said, uh, you don't have to pay your taxes for five years. Okay? Um, there's another historian named Strabo who peaks, um, speaks of insecure walls in the city. But basically, they were afraid um, their infrastructure didn't hold up. Okay? And so anytime there was an aftershock, they were concerned that the walls would otherwise cave in them. So their likely thing to do is basically flee from the city. Outside was, um, was where you would go for safety. Okay? And a lot of them um, moved out of the city area and lived out kind of in the farm areas because they were afraid, again, of the buildings not holding up. Um, we also know that in response to the generosity of the Emperor Tiberius, who not only um, let says you don't have to pay the tribute, but also um, I'll help you rebuild your city, they renamed the city Neo Caesarea, the new Caesar. They gave their city a new name. Jesus may be interacting with that. Okay? Um, Philadelphia is in a vine-growing area, and its chief pagan cult was the worship of Dionysus, is the god of wine. Um, and, when, and when Ignatius of Antioch was on his way, the same guy, there's a lot of really cool letters from Ignatius, by the way, to some of the early churches. Those were all out on the same site that has that martyrdom of Polycarp, where I posted the link for that on Facebook. If you click that, there's a lot of early Christian writings, and there's a lot of letters from Ignatius to the early churches. Um, anyway, uh, he was on his way to be martyred in Rome in uh, 110. He stayed in Philadelphia, and he noted the presence of a Judaizing influence on the Christian church in the city. Okay, kind of, the, kind of that synagogue Satan stuff that we've seen in some of the other churches. He's uh, vouching that that is still going on in uh, 110 AD. Um, John's letters is being addressed to a group that is subject to both Jewish and Greek influence. Uh, and from a persecution standpoint, Philadelphia is not immune. Um, if you'd read that, um, the martyr in Polycarp, 11 Christians from Philadelphia were martyred with Polycarp uh, at the same time. Um, there are some parallels with Smyrna. Uh, both are um, designed to encourage the faithful in the face of problems within the church and outside of it. Okay? Um, and they are the two communities that also um, the only ones to receive unqualified praise from Christ. There is no condemnation um, for Smyrna or for Philadelphia. Uh, it says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Um, so I think the key of David likely alludes to Isaiah 22. Um, I'm going to read that for you real quick. And we'll do, um, for context, we'll do 15 through 25. Uh, here it goes. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here, and whom have you here, that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself, you who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock? Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. Things you don't remember, right? First pass through, uh, through Isaiah, you're like, whirl someone around and around, throw them like a ball. No, I had it underlined, but I don't recall it. Um, I will thrust you, uh, there you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. And that day I will call my servant, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to the house of Judah. 
and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and it will become a throne of honor to his father's house. So I think, I think that's what he's referring back to. And it basically comes to um, someone has um, misunderstood their place, and God is condemning that, and otherwise giving that to those who are more deserved. Where Which, is, go ahead. Where in Isaiah was that? 22. Isaiah 22. And, and I think with that, I think we see that tie if he expands on that. Um, when he's talking, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. So we see the same thing, kind of a recompense from God that says, I will, I'm, I'm going to set this right. You people who think you are, you say you are this way or you think you are this way and I, and I will write that wrong. Um, so I think, I think that is... Um, <clears throat> That's what Jesus is kind of introducing here. Um, says, oh, and where have we seen keys before in Revelation? He holds the keys. Binding of is it binding? Death and Hades. Death and Hades. Very good. Revelation 1, um, the keys of death and Hades. Um, so overall, I think we can uh, likely read this as authority in the kingdom. Who has the keys? The guy who holds, who has the authority. Okay, I get into my office because I have a key to my office. I don't really have an office. Just an example. But like... That's, I, no one gets into my house when I leave my house unlocked. I need other people who actually take care of themselves. You have keys if you're the right person to have keys. I have a key to my house. No one else does. I just don't use it. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, it's in Bonnerant. Good luck. Here's the deal. People drive through Bonnerant. I'm like, ain't no more stealing. They keep going. <laughs> All right. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So we should consider the metaphor of an open door as admittance into the kingdom. They have little strength, little power, but have remained faithful and kept his word and not denied his name. Loyal to his word in this context probably implies obedience to his commandments. Okay, your works. I know your works, of which the first is love. It's interesting that the two churches that got the highest praise in the book of Revelation were Smyrna and Philadelphia, described respectively as being poor and having no influence. Okay, that's who Jesus gives the highest praise. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. I'll make them bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. So there's an interesting reversal going on here. Um, so what the Jews originally expected from the Gentiles, they themselves will be forced to render to the church. Jesus does what he wants. Um, prostration, when they say, um, I, will, uh, I will have the basically prostrate in front of you, that's, a, that's not a religious term. Okay? That's just a normal, um, like a Eastern form of uh, Oriental gesture of homage. Okay? Um, he says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. There it is. There's the one. We highlight it and we say, yes, I will be taken away. I will not be impacted by uh, the things that happen at Christ's second coming. Um, I will be taken from the hour of trial. Why do I think that's not a physical protection? True. Who else in this context didn't have it? Apostles? Samaria? Like the other churches, yes? Like, if this is a promise, if he's saying, I, I, will, uh, I will keep you from the hour of trial, why is everyone dying? If it's, if it's a physical protection, this makes no sense at all. So this can't be where he says, uh, I will protect my church from any physical trouble. The big things that happen at my parousia, uh, I will yank you from the world. They're, they're being martyred. And Jesus says, yes, keep dying until all of you have died that should. It can't be that. But it is something, is it not? I would say perhaps it's after the second coming of the hour of trial. Oh, after his return? After his 
return. Well, so maybe this will help. Maybe this will help. Trial, the word for trial, is the same word that's used when Jesus prays, when he's in the Lord's Prayer and says, keep me not, um, lead us not into temptation. temptation. Same word. Spiritual connotations, yeah? Okay. Spiritual connotations. When he is um, being tempted by Satan in Luke, uh, when we're talking about the temptations of Satan to Jesus, same word. Same word. So here's what I think. Is I think what he's talking about is, is I, I will protect you from spiritual temptation. Okay? I will keep you, I will keep you protected. You will continue to follow me. Okay? If you are, if you are faithful, that protection will exist. It, it cannot be a physical um, protection though. That simply doesn't make any sense within the context. Okay? Which is generally, and the only reason I bring that up is because that's generally where our, our rapture thought comes from, right? Um, when things get really bad, God pulls his people out. That really doesn't seem like the direction of revelation at all. When things get really bad, it says die more so the people may know me. That's what he seems to be saying. So like, I, I just, we have, if those two things can be true at the same time, we have to figure out how. Okay? That's what I'm saying. Um, so trial is almost tied, almost always tied to spiritual things. I don't think it can be a physical comfort. It doesn't make sense in the context. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. We're reminded of the continued Philadelphia temptation. It says you have to hold fast. There must, there's something going on. They need, phys, they need spiritual protection and they need to hold fast. Okay? So they're, they're still being um, tempted in one way or another. Um, I would agree the pillar suggests stability and permanence. Okay? Um, and also not e- never going out of it. Again, think of the context of the, um, of the earthquake. Okay? You can stay in this building. <laughs> it's safe in here. As opposed to you have to flee from it because you're worried that it will crumble. Um, in the temple of my God, that's where God existed. Was that temple. So he's also saying that you won't ever be taken out of the presence of the Lord. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Although it's, it's interesting because we, we, um, if you, if we, as we read through Revelation, there is no temple. Okay, in the new heavens, new earth, Revelation 21, 2021, there is no temple. Because it doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be. Because if the temple was where heaven and earth intersect, where the presence of God dwells, okay, when the temple is destroyed, or actually more, more, more specifically, when Jesus leaves and the Holy Spirit comes, we are now the temple. Okay, Paul's, that's Paul's description. Okay, we are where heaven and earth intersect. We are where the Holy Spirit dwells, where God dwells on earth. Okay? At the time of Christ's second coming, when the heaven and earth are the same thing, and God, and God comes down here to make, um, to make those things with his people, um, God already dwells there. There is no need for a temple. He is God, and he dwells on earth. Okay? So that, that's kind of the progression of that. Um, so it's a figurative thing to say you'll be a, a pillar in the temple of my God, because there will be no temple. But like, I think that's what he's trying to communicate, is some uh, stability and protection uh, within uh, or from God. Um, yeah, I said, it should be noted that the new heavens and earth, there is no actual temple. Um, write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. This is not a physical city. Okay, if you have any, you, you see something online, you'll be like, hey, I'm going to help build the Jerusalem. Stop that. Stop it. Okay, you build a temple, stop it. Buying, these guys selling cows. Buy selling cows, the red cows to populate a new temple. Stop it. Okay, don't be doing that stuff. It's not a physical city. Um, Ezekiel, so uh, listen to how he describes this. Um, this is in Ezekiel 48. The circumference of the city, city shall be 18,000 cubits. Uh, this is coming from, he's listing measurements of a temple, which also did not exist at the time. And the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. Okay, we have a comparison of saying, I will give the name, uh, the city of, name of the city, my God, the New Jerusalem. Uh, this is, and it says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Is that a city? Or is that a people? Who's the bride? Church. Yeah, church. Yeah, 
Yeah, I understand. We are the bride of Christ. Yeah, I know what you're getting at. Yeah. So, like, when we see the city coming down and he refers to it as a bride, okay, is he talking about a literal city of New Jerusalem or is he talking about the church representing that Jerusalem? I think there's a strong case to be made that, that he's referring to the church. So, when we say, um, when he's going to give you the, the name of my new city, the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, I think that's what he's talking about. Um, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's Revelation 21. So the three things the conqueror receives is identification with the name or nature of God, um, and of the city or presence of, uh, of God the Father, and Christ's own new name. Uh, we also shouldn't forget that uh, we said Philadelphia renamed their city to Neo Caesarea, and God is saying, No, 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 I give new names. I give new names. I will rename your city. He will give him a greater new name. All right, I got one more city. I'm going to do a move. Oh, I'm going to make it. To the church in Laodicea, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. But not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what Spirit says to the churches." Is it getting, getting easier? Do you guys like some stuff kind of jump out at you? I, think, like, I see eat. I'm like, okay, intimacy. Stuff should be coming as you go. City of Laodicea was founded by Antiochus II around 250 BC. It was named after his wife. Very, very nice. It was at a junction of two important trade routes, one um, east from Ephesus and the Aegean Sea. The other went south from Pergamum to the Mediterranean. Okay, it's a, it's a pretty heavy route to go through there. Um, along that southern route were Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Okay, heading south. Uh, it was a wealthy city in the time of the Roman Empire. Here were the things they were wealthy for. Clothing. The surrounding countryside produced excellent sheep, and great revenue was generated from their soft, raven-black wool of their flocks, used in their flourishing textile industry. Banking. Um, because it was a heavy trade route, there was a lot of gold coming in and out of Laodicea. Okay? It was related to the city's commercial and agricultural prosperity and was a feature of life in Laodicea. Uh, in fact, after there was another earthquake, major one in AD 60. This hits both Laodicea uh, and also Colossae and Hierapolis, which is on either side of it. And the city was rebuilt from its own wealth. Same thing happens. The Roman government says, you know, have to pay a tribute and we'll help you out. And Laodicea says, nope, we got this ourselves. Well, we don't need your money. Go ahead and keep it. That's what they did. Um, Medical school. The city was famous for its medical school, which was related to the uh, nearby temple and cult of Mean Charis. Uh, Mean was an ancient and local god uh, later identified with Asclepius. Um, there was an eye salve. They reported that they had an eye salve that was famous for curing blindness. It was a mix of powder and oil. Okay, uh, They were doing cataract surgeries in, uh, in Laodicea at, at that time. Uh, okay, so that's a little bit... Do, do, do we see Jesus interacting with that in the church of Laodicea? Yeah, he really goes to town on this one. Uh, gloves are off. Um, if we look at the names of Jesus, um, said the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Um, these point to faithfulness, truth and a uh, new beginning. Something that Laodicea needs. They will receive no commendation, not even to a small remnant that are remaining steadfast. Okay? I know your works. You are neither hot. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
Um, first of all, that spit, I think, is being a little bit too soft. The word means vomit. I will violently vomit you out of my mouth. Okay? Um, I don't know if you guys heard this. This tends to happen uh, probably youth, youth age is when we teach this wrong, is we say, hey, you need to be hot for Christ, not cold for Christ. But what he says is like, I'm good for cold or hot. I just don't want lukewarm. So if we take that as spiritual temperature, the cold doesn't make any sense at all. Jesus is like, yeah, no, I'd be all right if you just gave up. Uh, or if you weren't faithful to me at all, at least you're being honest. Like, is that okay? It doesn't seem what he's getting at. It's the lukewarm that's the problem. Okay? Laodicea had few natural resources, including water. They had to pipe it down from Hierapolis, or pipe it up, or get it, get it moved up from Colossae. And here's the deal. Hierapolis had natural hot springs. If you're in Laodicea and you kind of look up, you can see it up on a ridge. It's covered in white. It looks like snow on a mountain. Okay? It's the, it's the, um, the remnants, basically, of the hot springs of the deposits from Hierapolis. Okay, um, Colossae is also up. They also have cold. They do uh, natural cold springs, cold water. Okay, so they'd have to try to bring water in from either one of these sides um, to try to get water into the city. So I think cold, hot, and lukewarm are not to be interpreted in terms of spiritual temperature. Okay, good does not equal hot. Bad does not equal cold. Um, the contrast is, um, is between hot medicinal waters of the city of Hierapolis to the north and cold pure waters of Colossae to the south. Basically, you're not useful. You're ineffective. Okay, you're not doing anything. I'm upset with your works, which seems consistent with how he's talking to the other churches. Okay, uh, In practical terms, they are neither providing healing for the spiritually sick or refreshment for the spiritually weary. They are being chastised for the barrenness of their work. You're not doing anything. I want to spit you out of my mouth. Um, basically, basically, you make me sick. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see their real condition is revealed. Okay? Everything they think makes them valuable. Productive in their own eyes is the source of their offense to Jesus. He's mocking... He puts it in their terms to mock their arrogance. I, you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not real. Yeah. All those things which make them secure is what Jesus says they actually need. Things that they are confident that we're good to go. And Jesus says, no, you need every one of those. He says, what's his counsel? Counsel to buy, he's the dealer. He's the dealer. He deals the gold. He deals the richness. He deals the clothes. We get our definition and provision from Jesus of what is rich. Remember? You are poor, but you are rich. Our definition of what rich is comes from Christ. And the supply from that also comes from him. Okay? Who did he say was rich? Smyrna was rich, even though they were poor. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. So I think the application for us here is what do we need? In what ways are we pretty confident that we're, uh, that we're self-sufficient? What are we relying on Jesus for? Me? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I provide for myself. I do. I'm, I'm this. I'm Laodicea. I will clothe myself. I have my money. I don't rely on Jesus for anything. I'm probably blind to that. Is Jesus saying I can't make money and buy stuff now? That's, that's dumb. Okay? He's not calling us to poverty. He's not promising prosperity. Okay? The question is, are, are they on the table? Right? And I can, I can write this off, but it was a problem in Laodicea, and this smells a lot like me, is what this is. It smells a lot like me. Or is it just a lack of realizing where those, where our help comes from? 
So I think... Like you said, he's not calling us to poverty. He's not, not telling us not to work and rely on him for right. heaven and all... The other parts of the Bible, you don't work, you don't need. Right, right, agreed, right? agreed. So, is it more of than just a lack of understanding and a lack of recognition and a lack of giving thanks to God for what is and and what He does and that kind of thing? Possibly. So, I, yeah, so I, I think that's that's the real deals. The things that are designed and this came up um, kind of on the Facebook discussion about Asclepius. Like, there's a natural healing going on at that at that place. Um, is it wrong to be healed naturally that way? No. No. It's just the things that were glorious belongs to God and we direct somewhere else, I think we have a problem. But here's, here's the also thing that I, would, that I would caution is I am very concerned that this produces blindness. That um, if I can always provide myself, I'm never relying on God for anything, it produces blindness in me that says I will take care of myself. Okay? And the, the, the reason is because relative to, if I look, if I look at the, the current circumstance of my brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, I live very well compared to them. Okay? Again, I, I live in a relative culture. Okay, I could give up everything, and then I'm a burden on the state. Okay, that's not that's not what we're saying. Right. But what I'm saying is, is like this type of thing creates blindness to the extent that they're saying they're not even saying I have these things and they're okay. They're saying yes, I am rich. I, I, I'm defining rich by my own standard, not by God's. Right? I'm directing the. I'm where I'm finding value is from what I value, what I produce, and I'm relying on myself. And so I think it's just something we have to be careful of. Well, well, it just kind of speaks to you when he talks about. Um, giving salve, you know, are they worshiping the salve? They created at the medical school. So they it's healing blindness. And so now they're they're on the brink of look at us and we're great and we're awesome and, we're, and not giving the glory to God for the knowledge and the understanding and, and to be able to cre- create the salve. So I think the the root source is pride, right? Like it's to say, look what look what we've done. We rely on us. We are powerful. We do we handle these things. Okay, I think I think that's yeah. I would agree that that's kind of the root source. Uh, he says to those uh, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anybody got the the picture in their place? Or your grandma's got it of the of the Jesus knocking at the door. What do we say? Hey, like hey, he's knocking at the door so that you can get to know Jesus. That's not what this is. This is a church. Okay, that's the Christians. Uh, so, you know, so don't wave that at a guy who doesn't know Jesus. He's not going to understand what you're talking about. Five minutes, okay. Um, so yeah, it, it was he's he's knocking at the door saying, um, basically, <laughs> let let me in. Like you, you've you've kind of pushed me out of this thing. I'm asking to come back in. Um, the reason Jesus rebukes them, though, okay, to those whom I love, I've approved and discipline. He's calling them out of their blindness. Again, broad point here. Okay, he's he chastises those who he loves. I'm calling you back to me. I love you. That's what this is for. It's what his judgments will be for. Um, it's what his calls to the churches are for. I'm calling you out of your blindness. The threat of judgment on the community and the summons to repent are inseparable from Christ's love. They are followed by immediate promise of table fellowship. Okay, I will come and eat with him and he with me. Um, this uh, he says those I love. It's a loose paraphrase from Proverbs three twelve. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son whom he delights. Um, there's some interesting things about the word love, but I don't think we have time to get into that tonight. Um, I kind of like him knocking at the door. It's a patient Jesus. Um, it's it's one thing if you hear me knock, right? Have we interacted with Jesus' voice so far in Revelation? The answer is yes. And it was described in far different, in a very different way. The roar of the roar, no, his voice is the roar of many waters, right? Loud, right? Like this loud roar of many waters is loud. And what do we see? Jesus patiently knocking at the door, saying, "If you hear me, if you hear me." Okay, it's and it's uh, the tense of the verbs is important. Jesus is standing at the door, which suggests that he's been there for for some time. 
Okay, and I am knocking is a repeated and gentle request for entry. Not just I knock once, kind of ding-dong dash. <laughs> it's not what he did. He's just knocking, okay, waiting for them to repent. Um, if anyone hears my voice, there's a choice here. There's a choice here. They must respond. Um, and he says, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. We said earlier that meals represent intimacy. That's a cool image. Guys. Like, it's a cool, it's a cool thing. He uses meals like that, um, kind of as this, this ultimate culmination of his people coming together. Um, and I think here we can see it as a restoration of fellowship. Okay? All you gotta do is open the door and, and, and we're back and I will eat with you. And these things that I have against you, we can repent of and we'll come back and we can be, and can be restored. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. How does Jesus conquer? That's an easy one. Sunday school answer. How does Jesus conquer? He sits down. How did Jesus conquer just about everything? Death. Cross, yes. Yeah, yeah. If I say Sunday school answer, it's generally a cross deal. Okay? Well, okay? I thought, I thought it, the answer was Jesus. So That's uh, close. Okay, the one who conquers, okay? Jesus conquers by faithfulness to the Father in death. Okay, he, do, he says what, what the Father tells him to say. He does what the Father tells him to do. So by faithfulness to the Father and death, his conquest also belongs to the Father in that way. And we share in that as we are faithful even to death. Okay, it's not, it's not a measure of you have to die tomorrow. It's what's on the table. And participate with God in Christ in his sovereign rule. We talked about that a little bit earlier. That's our letters to the churches. I made it. Two minutes ago. That's right. Um, so for uh, for next week, um, we're gonna have to start making some bounds here. Oh shoot, I'm not here next week. I'm not here next week. Sorry, I'm not, I got to go train some stuff in Jacksonville. So I will be gone next week. We'll pick it up the following Monday. Okay. Um, I'm gonna try to book through. Uh, here's the deal. I don't want to deprive you of some stuff, but we also need. To, uh, otherwise, we're gonna be here for like nine months. So um, I'm gonna try to get, get through at least four or five chapters um, next week. Um, which means we're going to have to buzz over some of the um, some of the stuff that we've been stopping on. I think you guys can start to kind of digest it on your own, and we'll get to some bigger picture stuff. But just know that that's what we're going to do. Um, so I'll post some more stuff on the Facebook. If you're not on the Facebook, it's a cool thing to join. Um, I'll post stuff throughout the week. Thank you.